You're listening to Workplace Perspective, an employment law podcast raising the bar at workplaces everywhere. Workplace Perspective is a regular podcast series for employers and employees focusing on education, training, and the law to help organizations of all sizes develop and maintain successful workplace relationships. The opinions expressed by guests on Workplace Perspective are their own and should not be considered legal advice. And now, here's your host, Teresa McQueen. Thank you, James, and welcome everyone to Workplace Perspective, where we are striving to raise the bar at workplaces everywhere. Today's show is our second in a two-part series we've put together on the recent U.S. Supreme Court decision in the Viking River Cruises, Inc. v. Moriana case a case with workplace implications for both employers and employees. Today, we're talking with plaintiff's employment law attorney, Neil Pedersen. Neil was on the show a few years ago, sharing his thoughts on arbitration agreements in the wake of another impactful arbitration-related case. And we are super excited to have him with us once again. It's going to be a great show. Don't go away. We'll be right back. Workplace Perspective has a new website. Visit us at www.workplaceperspective.com. Check out our new look, including our featured guests and archive sections. Share us with your friends and colleagues to help us continue to raise the bar at workplaces everywhere. Welcome back to our listeners and welcome back once again to Workplace Perspective, Neil Pedersen. Thank you very much. I'm thrilled to be here. So, Neil, before we get started, why don't you just remind our listeners a little bit about who you are and what you do? Okay. I am a 33-plus-year attorney here in California. I have my own firm. uh, It's located in Westminster, California. It's a small firm, four employees. Uh, We dedicate our practice entirely to employee rights, so we generally do not represent employers. We only represent employees. Um, I've been involved in PAGA cases for, oh, maybe eight to ten years at this point, Uh, And so I'm pretty familiar with that, the process uh, of PAGA and how how Viking River has thrown a wrench into things. Absolutely. So on the show, we've recently spoken about this case, of course, from the employer's perspective. And I'm really excited to step to the other side of the bar and to hear your thoughts on what you think the potential impacts of this case are on employees' rights Um, And I know, as you mentioned, right, Viking River brings together two subjects you are really familiar with. Um, I know you've, again, represented employees in several PAGA and PAGA-related cases, and that you are a huge fan of arbitration agreements. Wink, (laughs) wink, nudge, nudge. (laughs) We don't get get to do our our, uh, Monty Python references very much anymore. (laughs) So uh, just so we're all on the same page, um, can you just remind our listeners of kind of what we're talking about when we refer to PAGA actions? Sure, sure. Although there are many good employers out there, there are also many employers who like to skirt the California Labor Code in many ways or unknowingly violate the Labor Code in many ways. Uh, Things like failure to pay minimum wage for every hour worked failure to provide a reasonable opportunity to provide meal and rest periods, Uh, complying with the wage statement requirements, uh, the elements that must be on a wage statement so the employee can know how they're being paid and what money's being taken out of their check, and dozens of other labor code requirements that the legislature has created to protect employees and give them 
a working environment that uh, it pays appropriately, et cetera. The task of rooting out labor code violations at one point in time before PAGA fell on the, the, um, the, the state, a state entity to go out, find the violations and issue penalties to the employer uh, for violations. And normally those penalties would be a certain penalty for every employee that had a, a labor code violation. Uh, and the employer would have to pay those, those penalties to the state. Well, in uh, several years ago, the California legislature determined that it was far too uh, expensive for the state to root out these violations of the labor code. And so they created PAGA, the Private Attorney General's Act that, uh, that empowers uh, employees to bring the claims of violation of the labor code about that they experienced themselves or that other employees in the same employer uh, have experienced and then collect those penalties, give the majority of those penalties to the state, but allow them to keep a certain amount of money, essentially to incentivize the employees to uh, do the state's job. So, um, so PAGA was, uh, it wasn't a class action. Um, it wasn't one employee trying to uh, adjudicate the rights of all the other employees that were treated badly. In fact, when an employee brought a PAGA action and represented all the other employees, the only thing being adjudicated was the penalties to be paid to the state. But all of those employees still maintain their own rights to uh, make a claim for violation of the minimum wage and meal and hour meal and and rest period claims, things like that. That is what made it distinct from a class action, because in a class action, one employee says, I've been injured and all these other employees have been injured similarly, and I'm suing on behalf of that entire class. That's not what was happening here, but it felt a lot like a class action because it was one employee uh, going after an employer for penalties for violations uh, that were experienced not only by the plaintiff, but by all the other employees that were similarly situated. So that has been around for a while. Uh, and in fact, uh, maybe about three or four years ago, there started to be quite an upswell of support to get rid of PAGA because it was a, it was, as the Supreme Court said in the Viking River case, an ad terrorum type of statute. In other words, you could create a huge financial exposure mm -hmm. to a, uh, an employer by a single employee bringing an action and then asserting all these, these uh, violations. Uh, you know, for instance, uh, I've had some PAGA cases in the past uh, where, well, I had one where there were only seven aggrieved employees, and yet the uh, PAGA penalties resulted in over a half a million dollars in a judgment. Uh, you can have 150 employees, and that could get close to a million dollars in exposure if you add up all the penalties, because the penalties are exacted on a per pay period basis. So if you have an employer that's not uh, giving a reasonable opportunity to provide meal periods or rest periods, every single employee who missed 
a meal period, there would be a penalty. Uh, and then you multiply that, the number of, of employees, time the number of pay periods where there was this violation, and it adds up very quickly, even though it's, I think, a $100 um, and $200 per employee penalty, it adds up very quickly. And so the, uh, you know, from a plaintiff's point of view, a plaintiff's attorney's point of view, it has been a very effective and powerful tool to go to employers that are doing it wrong and force them to change their ways because uh, there was a huge disincentive. They didn't want to be involved in this type of PAGA litigation. However, um, the Chamber of Commerce and businesses across the state uh, started uh, this upswell of support to try to defeat PAGA in many different ways. And frankly, I saw the handwriting on the wall about three and a half, four years ago, and haven't filed a PAGA claim since then, because I believed at some point this representative action that allowed you to, to aggregate all these other claims was going to eventually be going away. And unfortunately, we're seeing possibly a precursor of that with Viking River. Okay. So in the just a few minutes we have before the break, can you sort of tell us quickly what the landscape was for employees pre-Viking River? Yes. So pre-Viking River, uh, any employee that was aggrieved, in other words, that had sub been subjected to a labor code violation, could sue the employer for their PAGA penalties. And the PAGA penalties, when collected, most would go to the state, 25% would go to the employee. And then they could also sue for penalties for all these other employees. And that, that was the lay of the land. Now, in order to combat that, employers started employing, many employers at least, started employing a collective action waiver. Uh, what that basically is, is in the arbitration agreement between employer and employee, the employer would have the employee sign a provision that said, I will not bring any collective claims, uh, which means, for instance, class action. Sometimes they're called class action waivers. The, uh, a few months or a few years ago, the California State Supreme Court said those collective action waivers cannot be applied to PAGA claims because it would be against the public policy of the state because these are claims where the employee is standing in the shoes of the employer and suing to get penalties that are going to be going to the state and that the, the arbitration agreement cannot um, prevent the state from collecting its penalties. So this whole, uh, that was the, the what pre-existed this Viking River case. There were many employers that had collective action waivers that still allowed for the PAGA action. And then I'll explain what happens in a bit. Yeah. And then it's, I think what confuses a lot of people is that language. So it's class action or representative actions. Um, and that's, you kind of touched on that earlier, that class has to do with standing up for a harm for all of everyone who experienced the same harm, a representative action is a little bit different in that this is simply about the penalties and and representing that particular, I'm getting tongue-tied, aren't I? It's representing that particular um, violation um, yeah, as so, opposed to other grievances, right? Yes, and the Supreme Court made a, a distinction in that term representative action because 
it's used in two different ways. And in one way, it's implicated by the decision, and in other ways, it isn't. It PAGA is always going to be a representative action, even if brought individually by the plaintiff about their own violations, because the employee is representing the state, the LWDA. Okay. Right? So that kind of representative action is not affected by uh, the, the new case. But the other way the PAGA was a representative action is that the plaintiff could bring uh, claims for penalties, not only for themselves, but for all of the other employees. And that's the part that is significantly affected by the Viking River case. Okay. We're going to talk about that in the next few minutes, but right now we're going to take a quick break. And when we come back, more of Neil's thoughts uh, on the Viking River case. Stay with us. We'll be right back. Take a step toward bringing our country and community together. Start a meaningful conversation at lovehasnolabels.com slash one small step. A message from StoryCorps, Love Has No Labels, and the Ad Council. Welcome back, everyone. We are talking with plaintiff's attorney, Neil Pedersen, about the recent U.S. Supreme Court case of Viking River Cruises v. Moriana and its impact on employees. So as we alluded to right before the break, let's talk about now how Viking River actually changes the law uh, from the employee's perspective. Okay, so PAGA actions are still allowed where the plaintiff files a lawsuit seeking adjudication of their own rights. In other words, their own, the own, whatever they would be able to get because they were denied minimum wage, uh, meal and rest periods and the like. And these plaintiffs can also bring a PAGA claim as to their own penalties as to their own aggrieved status. So if there are uh, a failure to pay minimum wage and a failure to provide meal and rest period, the plaintiff can still seek those penalties on behalf of the state and recover those and then give 75% to the state and keep 25%. So that hasn't changed. The significant change of Viking River is that the court has held that in an arbitration setting, the employee may not bring a collective action. In other words, bring in other employees' uh, penalties that the state could have otherwise uh, collected. So where before an employee might have a, a, a systemic policy at a company that denied rest periods, and they would be able to file a claim for their self and for all of the other employees denied a rest period and get all of those penalties and give 75% to the state and keep 25%. Now they don't get to represent the state related to all those other employees. They can only represent the state as to um, themselves. Uh, that's the basic holding of Viking River. And and what was the reason for the, what was the, what did they use to get to that, to, to make that change? Right. And that's why when I started off, I said in an arbitration context, all of this came about as a result of an argument that the PAGA allowing a plaintiff to join a bunch of other people into the lawsuit to seek penalties violated arbitration provisions with a collective uh, action waiver. It forced people that may not have been subject to the arbitration clause to be involved in, uh, in an action that, that would have required some element of it being in arbitration. 
And uh, the court said that violated the FAA, the Federal Arbitration Act. That has always been the battle between the California Supreme Court and the U.S. Supreme Court. The California Supreme Court and legislature tend to be very pro-employee, and that means they are, um, are more willing to remove an employee from arbitration if there's an arbitration provision. And the U.S. Supreme Court has time and again struck down California law and, and, and uh, case law uh, that would limit the uh, ability of employers to compel employees into arbitration. And this is just another one of those, uh, those situations. It's interesting because what if all the employers, you know, so if all employees have signed an arbitration agreement, that sort of poke a hole in that argument? Because even if they're not representing themselves, they have agreed on some level to arbitration. So whether they, so whether I'm representing myself or I'm representing a coworker who also signed an arbitration agreement. Yeah, they, I, I think that's that's possible, and I think, you know, the Viking River's reach will be have to be determined through a subsequent case law that will come down, because I think there are a number of things that are unclear at this point. Uh, that would be one of them. Uh, another would be a situation where where there is no arbitration clause. And where there is no arbitration clause, I would think that Viking River would not apply. This is my personal opinion, mm -hmm. uh, based on being a plaintiff's attorney for years and years. Um, but because the rationale of the case was the FAA, uh, the Federal Arbitration Act, uh, and uh, the whole basis for the court's decision is that the Federal Arbitration Act preempts state law. In other words, it trumps it. It, it If the federal government has stated uh, a rule within that area of law, then no state can, uh, can have a law inconsistent with it. In a situation where there are no arbitration clauses, uh, I think normal PAGA still applies. Well, I think it's interesting. What keeps coming to mind is, and it's a natural extension of the discussion, I think is the um, at AB 51, where if you're a California employer, you can't require an employee to sign an arbitration agreement. But I think I hear that misquoted all the time. And it sounds scarier than it is. But what my impression of that and the way I read it was, sure, if you're not engaging in interstate commerce, which subjects you to the federal rules of arbitration, and I can't imagine that there are very many California businesses that don't engage in interstate commerce. I mean, if you order from Amazon, <laughs> you're engaging in interstate commerce. I mean, you know, if you're ordering supplies or at least, I mean, that's a very broad uh, argument. I don't know that that's been tested, but it, it doesn't seem to be the bugaboo that everyone thinks it is. Well, you know, that is the uh, defense argument <laughs> related to that statute. The... Which convinces you I put on my black hat, doesn't it? <laughs> <laughs> well, the FAA itself has a savings clause that basically says that it is not affecting the validity of a contract based on uh, state law contract terms, unconscionability, uh, failure of meeting of the minds, any number of contract defenses that might exist. And the argument for the, the new statute require, uh, prohibiting arbitration clauses uh, 
is really poking at that that savings clause, which means the FAA would still not would still not apply. It goes to whether or not a contract can be formed as opposed to what the contract would say about arbitration. It would limit arbitration or the like. The latter would certainly be part of the uh, a part of the preemption of the FAA, but the former, uh, that has been tested by a federal court. In fact, a federal court had put a, a restraining order on enforcement of that law for well over a year until it decided that that law did, was not preempted by the FAA. So that's still something that's going to be hotly debated between the plaintiffs and defense bar for some time. Interesting. So interesting. I love these. I love the back and forth on these issues. And you know how I feel about. <laughs> but as we wrap up today's show, uh, can you sort of, you've kind of done it already a little bit, but do you have any additional thoughts for the future or? I do. I think that this is just the first salvo in a battle over this. Uh, Judge uh, Sotomayor, in her concurring opinion, said, of course, if this court's understanding of state law is wrong, California courts in an appropriate case will have the last word. Alternatively, if this court's understanding is right, the California legislature is free to modify the scope of statutory standing under PAGA within state and federal constitutional limits. I think that was her saying this could be resolved and we could go back to something similar to what we had if the California legislature or the California courts takes action. And given the, the history of the California legislature and its makeup, I could see the California legislature creating legislation that would work around the Viking River case and allow PAGA claims to still exist because it is a, there is a solid public policy uh, backing the, the reason for PAGA. And it's possible the courts might also uh, redefine how PAGA actually works so either one of those alternatives uh, suggested by Justice Sotomayor could once again radically change the environment. And I look forward to seeing what happens not only in the courts, but also in the battles and the legislature that will soon uh, come. Yeah, it's certainly going to be interesting. I've always thought the safe harbor provision would be a way to sort of, <clears throat> I just have never thought that the safe harbor provision was sufficient enough for an employer who wasn't willful, who wasn't, you know, who just made a mistake. Cause you and I both know, I mean, I know how we both feel about it, but California wage and hour law is complicated. It's really complicated. And I think that a safe Harbor provision that would actually let a, a, an employer who, who just is like, Oh, you know, didn't I realize payroll was doing it this way, or I misunderstood or something benign that they would have a better opportunity to correct and make the employee whole and, and account for that as opposed to this, you know, what is it, like 30 days or something? You can't even get your arms around. I mean, people are still stunned 15 days after getting the notice that they've even been served and what the implications of this are going to be. And then you have delays with the, you know, with notice and all those sorts of things. So 30 days, just it goes like that, you know? I think there's going to be an attack on PAGA also through uh, well, through other means. This was certainly a, uh, a breath of fresh air for employers at, with this particular case. 
But even before this, there were multiple, there was a lot of talk about multiple propositions to go on the ballot that would significantly limit PAGA or the penalties or require more notice. A number of things that would have watered down PAGA a bit to give employers uh, either more time or uh, ways to avoid PAGA altogether. I don't think that's going to end. I think especially if the legislature goes back and reinstates PAGA, I think there's still going to be attack on that and there's going to be an attempt to push public sentiment toward the employer and away from the employee because they've, they've already started with the, you know, the rich trial lawyers are trying to take, take money from these employers. Well, the only way the money goes from the employers is if they've been found to be violating California law and 75% of it is still going to the state. Uh, if the state just funded that department, those same exact actions would still exist. But, you know, that's a battle that uh, will go on for a long time. I understand why the employers want to limit PAGA. I think they have legitimate reasons to want to do so, but plaintiff's attorneys have legitimate reasons to keep PAGA alive and keep employers uh, on the straight and narrow. Yeah, and not on the extremes. I think you and I both are not talking about, you know, those who've made it a business model or those who are out for other reasons. Mm -hmm. um, we're talking about the mainstream. That's our show. We've run out of time. I love talking to you. We have run out of time for today. Thank you so much for joining uh, all of us and sharing your thoughts and your expertise with our listeners. You're welcome. It's fun. I enjoy it. Well, we'll definitely have you back. Okay. Um, if you want to learn more about Neil or Pedersen Law, you can find them on the web at pedersenlaw.com. That's P-E-D-E-R-S-E-N-Law.com. You can also connect with Neil via our website at workplaceperspective.com. I want to also thank our listeners, my radio angels, James and the Nave at Night and Workplace Perspective's team extraordinaire, our engineer and producer, Paul Roberts, our associate producer, Melissa DeLacy, with music provided by the very talented Stephen Bersaloni. Thank you all for joining us on Workplace Perspective. And until next time, keep raising the bar. Keep raising the bar.